It's a delay. How scary is it to see my face that big on a screen? It's really off-putting for me. I don't know about you, but it's like, whoa. Man, this is a happy sixth birthday, Emmaus Road Church. Yeah. So just so you know, there are cupcakes by Andrina um, available for your consumption immediately after the service ends. So please help yourself and enjoy them. They are delicious. She's an amazing baker. So please help yourself after service. Um, Our first public service was held February 19th, 2017, exactly six years ago today at the Freeborn Lutheran Church at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Really, 2 p.m. We were there for a few months when we finally realized, like, going into summer that nobody was going to be coming to church at 2 p.m. You know, nobody who's at the lake on Sunday afternoon says, you know, we should just pack up and go to church for a little while. So we, we moved to Cedar Home Elementary School really quickly. We had a two-year agreement with the uh, Stanwood School District. That's their norm, is two years. When our two years was coming up, thank you. Um, when the two years was coming up, um, we asked for a third-year extension. And so the school district kicked it back to the principal. And the principal at Cedar Home Elementary kicked it back to the staff. And the staff said, we love these guys. Give them another year. And we were just so blessed. It was just so great. Um, Yeah, it was God's provision. Uh, We were wrapping up that last year, that third year, when the theater became available with what is now over across the hallway, the kid, ER kid space, uh, serves as many other things during the week. COVID hit as we were renovating that space over there, and God helped us dodge a bullet. And here we are three years later, and ER is turning six years old today. And so um, I want you to know, as we celebrate this moment, that this church has impacted lives in places you might not know about, and maybe you wouldn't believe if you heard it, but uh, we've supported church planters here in the Northwest. We've been part of assessing and coaching other church planters around the United States. We have supported missionaries in Japan, Pakistan, Haiti, and Scotland, as well as mis- ministries here in, the, in Western Washington, like Abundant Life which is a, a pro-life ministry that helps moms keep their babies instead of aborting them. And we, we've supported ministries here in our own town, like Safe Harbor Free Clinic, just, just across the way. And we've made outreach a high priority, and rightfully so. And at the center of all of this has been this consistent teaching of God's Word. It's the engine that drives everything else that we do, right? And so we, we just had a great relationship with the owners of the theater here, and everywhere we've been, whether it's been a short stay at Freeborn Lutheran or three years at Cedar Home Elementary or here in this building, uh, we continue to leave a trail of lives impacted by the gospel because of the love of this congregation, because of your service. No kidding, the city of Stanwood rejoices when we show up at City Hall to sign up for summer events. Did you know that? Well, like last summer I went in there and I think Kevin was with me. Maybe it's Kevin. I don't, I don't know if some Kevin or somebody else. Kevin saying no. Okay. All right. But anyway, we went in and they saw us and they said, is Emmaus Road going to be part of Touch a Truck? And they were really excited. And that just made my heart light up, man. It's like, wow, when the city's excited that we're going to participate, that's huge. Our neighbors, even in this building, have been impacted by your generosity and the things that we've cleaned, repaired, and replaced, sometimes without even being asked. Our testimony to those outside of Emmaus Road is one of selfless service and care for our neighbors. And listen, you need to know that's on you. 
That's on you. Thank you, each and every one of you, for choosing to be generous with your time, talent, treasure, and touch. And now we believe that our Lord Jesus, the head of his church, wants to transition us again. Our elders and I have been actively searching for God's provision and next steps for our church. And we we just, uh, even this last week, went and saw a large house on acreage that uh, we, we looked at that together. Uh, it's one of many that Pastor Kevin and myself have have looked at with a local realtor, but it just seems that everywhere we go, everything we look at, the door is closed. And um, it really has been frustrating to my heart. And, and then this week, my wife uh, reminded me of something. She's really good about that. When I get just frustrated, you know, you guys, right? You're in that place, the, all right? And she just comes along in her sweet, sweet little voice and says, hey, you remember the time God did this? I'm like, you're right, you're right. And then, and then you know, it starts to lift, right? Well, she reminded me in 2003, we, we had moved to Athens, Georgia in 2000, just after Noah was born. And we'd been there for a while. We'd come to the place where we were thinking about potentially buying a home instead of renting. And every time I went out, we went out with the realtor, um, <coughs> Jen and I could just not agree about any house we looked at. We'd go look at with a realtor, and we'd go to one house, and I would love it, and she would hate it. And then we'd go to the next house, and, and she would hate it, and I would love it. It was just back. It was, it was, we could not agree on anything. We argued about every house we looked at. We couldn't get on the same page. And then in, in the midst of our frustration, weeks into this process, God tapped us on the shoulder and said, Hey, guys, stop. Pray. Stop and pray. Stop striving and pray. And so we did. We just we, we, we began to pray for a few days, and it turned into a few weeks. And then one day, out of the clear blue sky, uh, less than a month after we had stopped looking, a friend called us, and they were leaving Athens for the next calling on their family. God had put on their family, and they asked us to come over to their house to have a meal. And we got to their house. We had no idea what was going to transpire. But when we got there and shared a meal with them, they they basically said they've been praying uh, about their next move and, and, and who would come into their home and continue the work of ministry out of that home. And they wanted us to buy their house. And they knew that we were on support from donors. They knew we didn't have much money, but they were willing to sell us the house for so much less than it was worth so that it would be in the hands of people who would use it for the kingdom. That was their heart. And, and the, the weeks after that were just this, you know, the days, if you've ever bought a house, you've signed all kinds of papers, you've signed your life away, you're overwhelmed and overjoyed, and, you're, and, and we were just in awe of God's goodness and provision for our family. So time, time does not allow me this morning to go on in detail about all of God's provision for us here in Washington State when we moved from Georgia, or how he's blessed this church as we've walked by faith, but, but ask me about it in person. I would love to tell you the stories of what God has done among us here. He has blessed this church as we've walked by faith, but, but I'd love to share those stories with you. And all of this to say this this morning on our sixth birthday, I'm tired of looking and scrounging and asking God to bless our best efforts on getting a facility. That's on me. Instead, here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to join me and the elders from today until God provides for us together, that we would simply pray and ask 
and wait upon the Lord every day until he provides. You would commit with me and with our elder team to pray every day, Lord, provide for your church. You have something in mind for us. We don't know what it is, but we trust you. Will we do that? And I'm just going to ask you right now, unless you're just really, really, really averse to holding hands with people, <laughs> that you would just take the hand of the people on your either side of you, and then, and then we would just, uh, we'd just go to the Lord together right now. Would you agree with me in prayer? Father, we just come to you. And you said to us, let striving cease. Quit striving in your flesh. Quit trying to figure it out. Be at peace. Be at rest. Trust me. Call upon me. Pray to me. Wait upon me. And I will provide all that you need. You, you are a God who gives abundantly beyond all that we could ask and imagine according to your word. And Lord, so we just stop this morning. We cease striving. We're not going to make a way for ourselves. We want you to make a way for us. We thank you for your provision at every step from Freeborn Lutheran to, to Cedar Home Elementary School to this space that we're in even at this moment. And Lord, we know that you have something else for us in the future. We wait upon you. We wait upon you. You are good. You have only ever been gracious. You are our provider. And so we trust you. We choose to trust you. Instead of striving, we're going to wait upon you and pray. And Lord, we, we are expectant for what you want to do among us in the days ahead. We thank you for all of your goodness and grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And I believe our best days are still ahead, church. So with that, let's jump in. Let's jump into uh, our sermon today. That was just the warm-up for the sermon. So uh, that was like uh, maybe 10 minutes. We're going to go 15, 50, 60. Can you, can you do a 60-minute sermon? No? Okay. All right. We'll cut it down. All right. Wholehearted. This is the theme for us going forward. I know we'll, we'll unpack this for you in days ahead, but uh, this just lent, lent itself to these passages this week. And I wanted to define that word for you, wholehearted. It's an adjective, and it means characterized by complete sincerity and commitment. It means marked by complete earnestness. That's not a word we use in our English vocabulary much. Earnestness. Earnest to do this thing or to see it done. It means free from all reserve and hesitation. It's, a, it's, all, it's being all in, wholehearted. Devotion to God includes careful attention to His Word, an unwavering effort to obey Him. Not that we do that perfectly all the time, but that our hearts are towards Him in all that we think and all that we say and all that we do. And a heart that is single-minded has one, one single preeminent desire. And that desire is to please the Lord. But a heart that is divided is drawn here and there, backwards and sideways, trying to live both for self and for God, but it never works. In fact, we, we cannot serve two masters. Jesus tells us this in, in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. He will either be, he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You just can't do it. And Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and follow him. And in our denial of self and denial of the things of this world, God graciously provides what we need. 
it was, it was A.W. Tozer who famously said, we have as much of God as we actually want. Whew. That'll preach. We have as much of God as we actually want. So I'm just putting the question to you this morning. How much of God do you actually want? He's, he, he wants you to decide. He wants to hear from you. He wants to know what you want. God already took the initiative towards us. He, he took the initiative to rescue us and save us. He, he, he takes the initiative to give us his best when he made uh, the supreme and ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. The Father has already covered us with his love. The Son intercedes and prays for us each and every day. The Holy Spirit dwells within us, comforting us, helping us in our weakness. We have all of God, but does he have all of us? Are we wholehearted? See, I think uh, we take many of our cues from the culture around us, and, and typically we're a distracted people. I, I know that I am. We're people who gravitate towards entertainment and ease, and, and that sets us up for failure. The evil one knows this. He delights in that. He knows that distractions and temptations will come. He knows that our hearts are constantly being tempted to be drawn away from the goodness of God. Our enemy knows that we are too easily seduced by the lure of everything that the world has to offer. We're like fish in a pond. It's like, ooh, shiny, right? I, just, I feel like that some days. We're tempted to doubt the goodness of God when we're suffering and heartbroken. Yet we have to fight to draw near to God. It requires our intentionality. It requires our effort. It requires our whole heart. In fact, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, you'll seek me. This is God speaking through the prophet. He says, you'll seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. See, God is saying, I want you to be wholehearted in your pursuit of me. But instead of seeing this as a task or a burden, we need to see it as a great privilege and opportunity. We're laborers in God's vineyards and in God's fields. We need to hold tightly to the promise that the Lord has made to us. It's he who promised that when we seek him, we will find him. That's a promise. If we're seeking him, we will find him if we're seeking with our whole heart, right? This is precisely what it means to be wholehearted. And as we're seeking him in prayer, in fellowship, and especially in his word, we know that we have an increasingly intense love relationship with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We know that God's leading from day to day, and, and we'll know his leading moment by moment, and we will experience his leading in our circumstances. We gain wisdom from his word. His hand will be upon us all the days of our lives until we go into the house that he has prepared for us. These are all promises right out of God's word. This is what it means to be wholehearted. And by God's grace, we will attain it. So this morning, we're looking at the transfiguration again. Now, some of you are going, oh, man, Sadie, didn't you preach on the transfiguration last week? Yes, yes, I did. Um, but there's more to say. And I was so excited for this passage. I went further than I intended to last week. But over the last six days, I've just rediscovered again how rich this passage is. And I'm in no way worried that we will lack for insights and truths yet to be learned. So uh, we're, we're going to take a look here. We're in section 121. So if you have an actual harmony of the Gospels, and, and if you don't know what that is, that's all four Gospels laid out 
uh, in real time as the events occurred. And so if you have your Harmony of the Gospels, you can follow along there, section 121 to 123. But if you're in your, your paper Bible, it's Matthew 17, 1 through 8, and I'll call out the verses here. So you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recording the same thing here. Matthew 17, 1 through 8, and we read this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you want, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Here's Mark's account. Mark 9, 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them, and the voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus only. I love, I just got to stop and say, I love Peter. You, you just, everybody has the friend who, when things get really awkward, they, they say something. Because they can't just stand, they can't stand the silence. Somebody has to say something. That's Peter. I love that. Um, Luke 9, 28 to 36, uh, first half of verse 36. This is Luke's account. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And and as these men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, the chosen one, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So Peter was one of the first disciples that Jesus called. Peter is part of that inner circle with James and John. Peter was an impulsive guy (laughs) who'd come up in a blue-collar family as a commercial fisherman working for his dad. 
He's really rough around the edges, which is one of the things I, I like about Peter. He just tells it like it is. It's something that Jesus valued as well. Peter's impulsive devotion to Jesus was frequently on display. If you'll go back to Matthew 14, you'll see uh, Peter saying, I, I want to come walk on the water with you. It's not enough to see you do it. I, I want to do that too, right? Uh, he, he, John 21, he dives off the boat to be the first one to get to shore to see Jesus. Like he's just, he's got this impulsiveness, right? And Peter often acted as a spokesman, spokesman for the 12, though I'm not sure that was ratified 100%. Um, but he was the first to say that he and the other disciples didn't get Jesus' meaning or point on any given topic. You can see that on display in Mark 15. He, he regularly uh, interrupted Jesus. He, he interrupted Jesus' private prayer times on a couple of occasions because he was more focused on the crowds. You see that in Mark 1. It was Peter who presumed to speak up in the presence of Moses and Elijah and, and Jesus at the transfiguration to build tabernacles. Now, the, the English translation here, uh, we, we've got tents, right? It's booths. It's the Feast of Booths, right? And this is a place where they, they, they set the table for Moses and Elijah, and they, they recognize, you know, this festival of God. And here, and here are Moses and Elijah, and Peter's saying, hey, it's good that they're here. Yeah, that's an understatement. It's good that they're here. And, and so he says, we'll build tabernacles for all three, thereby putting his foot squarely in his mouth again. Um, it was serious enough of an error that God the Father spoke up audibly to correct him. Now remember the setting. Moses and Elijah have shown up in glory. Jesus is transfigured in glory, all three of them shining like the sun at noonday. And Peter says, wow, <laughs> I know. Let's build tabernacles for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And God the Father speaks audibly to stop Peter's egregious error. The takeaway in the moment is that Moses and Elijah, the two greatest prophets and fathers of Israel's history, are not on equal footing with Jesus. They are not on equal footing. See, Jesus is exceedingly far and beyond them in glory and status and power. Peter's caught up in the moment. He's not thinking clearly. He wanted to do for God what actually was an insult to God. How many of us have been in that place? And while we're here, let's stop and remember again why Moses and Elijah are even there. The Word of God came to mankind up to this point in history in the Old Testament through two main thrusts or initiatives. One was the giving of the law to Moses. And in, and in so doing, God was also revealing history past to Moses, allowing him to write the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible. The other initiative of God's word coming in the Old Testament was through the prophets. And Elijah represents the prophets as the most preeminent of the prophets. And so if there are any two people in antiquity that the Jews would look to for guidance when it came to relating to God, it would have been these two men. And so Peter's just dazzled that they've shown up. And, and rightfully so, but he's given over to his impulses and his best ideas about what to do in the moment. And, and, and the, you know, it causes God the Father to have to speak audibly to direct Peter's attention back to the wonder and focal point of the transfiguration, which is Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. 
Moses and Elijah were just men. They're just men. This is the Son of God. Additionally, the Scriptures say that the three of them talked together. Wouldn't you love to eavesdrop on that conversation? What, I mean, what did they talk about? Well, actually, the Bible gives us a little bit of information in Luke 9.31. It tells us that they spoke about Jesus' departure. Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, which was he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, don't miss this. Everything prior to this moment in history, the history of God's redemptive plan was embodied in those two men. Just think about it like that. The whole Old Testament, the Old Covenant really embodied in those two personages, Moses and Elijah. And now they are standing glorified, radiant with the Shekinah glory of God, with the the momentarily glorified Christ talking about the culmination of a plan that was set in motion before time began to extend an offer of salvation to all humanity. What a moment to be in. This is an incredible moment in time and space. Just think of the implications, which makes Peter that much funnier. You ever ruined a really somber moment? I think there was once, I I don't know, I burst into the house, you know, I'm home! And Jen was in tears about something that had happened. It's that kind of, it's that kind of like, ooh, ooh, ooh. Ah, sorry. Ah." Section 122. Keep going here. Matthew 17, 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Here's Mark's account, Mark 9, verses 9 and 10. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from the dead? What, what, what could that mean? They, they have no idea of what's about to happen. Luke 9, 36, second part of that verse Uh, They kept silent, told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This is clear, predictive prophecy from the Lord's own mouth, but Peter, James, and John do not understand all of it. There are some subtle hints from Jesus, but to this point, he has not been blatant or plainly open about what is going to happen in the days ahead. That's all about to change. He's going to start talking about this pretty, pretty openly. But we remember that Jesus had mentioned his death in Mark 8. If you go back to Mark 8, 31, uh, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And do you remember what happened next? There's Peter. (laughs) There's Peter, well-intending Peter with his foot all the way in his mouth. Um, Peter can't handle the thought of what Jesus has just said in Mark 8, 31, so he rebuked Jesus. Now, you know, Peter's Peter's trying to be a good guy. So he kind of pulls him aside. Didn't want to just rebuke him in front of everybody. He says, come here, Jesus. Come here. No, no, no. No, no, no. That's not, that's not the plan. That's not how this is going to go, right? And then Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember? Yeah? And so this is the second occurrence of an open prediction here. And, and as they're coming down the mountain, 
There's going to be a third clear prediction with the disciples on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, to observe the Passover. Those are the main three like, openly clear predictions of the death of Christ in the Gospels. And then there are some others uh, scattered through the Gospels that are more subtle in nature. I'll give you a couple. When Mary Magdalene anointed Jesus with that costly perfume, and then Judas asked her if she should have sold it for the poor, right? because he had the money bag. Um, Jesus, told her, uh, Jesus told him, hey, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you, for the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. So there's a, there's a kind of not quite so blatant, but it's, it's there. In John 13, 33, Jesus hinted that his time was short as he told the disciples, where I'm going, you cannot come. And, and then the last one would be John 14, 25, Jesus talking about the giving of the Holy Spirit after his ascension, which hinted at his death as well as the future of the church. But the underlying point of all these predictions, whether they're blatant or, or kind of subtle, is uh, that Jesus intentionally came to this planet, Earth, to die for the sins of mankind. And that's always been his mission. That was always the mission, to reconcile sinners, that's me and you, to, to God by his own atoning death and resurrection. That was always the end game. So we got one more section here, section 123 in the harmony. And here's Matthew 17, 10 to 13, just a couple of verses. So the disciples asked him, then why did the, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Here's Mark, Mark 9, 11 to 13. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things and, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And so the disciples, the apostles gained clarity about John the baptizer having come in the spirit of, in the role of Elijah the prophet. And regarding this piece, they now have understanding, they have clarity, but there's more to this passage that likely gave them pause and possibly apprehension. Now you see Matthew 17, so also the Son of Man, so also. Well, what did they do to Elijah? They killed him. So also, now you're putting that together in, in, in a linear, <laughs> they killed him, so also will they do to the, what? What? So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands, Matthew 17. Mark 9 says it this way, it is written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Now, if you're one of the 12 apostles at that moment, that's pretty off-putting. That's pretty off-putting for you. You're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He is, he is the promised one. He is the Mashiach Nagib, Messiah the Prince. But here he is talking about being put to death. And they do not understand this. And they won't understand this fully until after the resurrection of Jesus. 
Sometimes when we think we've got God figured out, that's the moment when our expectations and desires get crushed. And they need to be crushed. We see as one looking in a mirror dimly, Scripture says. Can't really make out what we're seeing there. But one day, Scripture says, we will see Him face to face. There won't be anything in between us. We'll be right. It's going to be incredible. I can't even. I mean, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, right? As we wrap this up, I, I just want to make three applications from the text this morning. Jesus models for us wholehearted obedience. Wholehearted obedience. As we begin our seventh year as a church, I want that theme to be continually before us. We still love God, love people, and live generously. But as we move into year seven, our focus and our theme is going to be wholehearted. We want to be wholehearted in all that we do, wholehearted in our pursuit of Jesus. I love what 20th century theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer said. He said this, if Jesus has not died, everything would have collapsed. Redemption depended on his substitutionary propitiatory death. In other words, Jesus took our place, and he was the sacrifice that brought us peace, right? And, and so, so, um, so Francis Schaeffer goes on. He says, um, if Jesus had not died, if he had turned aside, as Satan tried to make him do so many times, if he had, in Peter's words, actually had pity on himself and not gone to the cross, everything would be gone. Everything. There would have been no hope for Elijah, translated or not. It would have meant the end of Moses, the disciples, and everyone else because the redemption of everything depends on the single focal point of Jesus' death. It all hinges on his death. See, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven and came to earth He was born behind enemy lines in a place that had largely rebelled and was antagonistic towards God because of their sin. He lived a perfect and sinless life and died a horrific death as our Passover lamb. His precious blood atoned for our sin such that when anyone puts their faith in Jesus, that person's sins are paid for. They're forgiven. This is the great exchange. So we call the great exchange. Jesus' perfect righteousness in exchange for my sin. His suffering and death in exchange for my salvation. And when you've made that transaction with Jesus, when you've gone through that, the rest of your days are spent being wholehearted in devotion and obedience to him and his word. Jesus wants wholehearted disciples who love his word and obey his commands. And he asks that of us as one who has He has perfectly modeled this for us. Jesus models wholehearted obedience for us. So that's number one. That's number one. Number two is that God is pleased when we are wholehearted in our pursuit of him. He wants us to be wholehearted in our pursuit. See, Jesus is central to history. We divide time around his arrival on earth in time and space I, and I got to tell you, I desperately dislike this push to move towards the BCE thing. I, I, no, before Christ, Anno Domini, year of our Lord, right? I, I, that's that's how we BCE before the Common Era instead of before Christ. But anyway, 
whatever you say, whatever words you use, still divided, still divided around the person of Jesus. Um, so he's still the focal point of history. If, if you're not a Christian, when you stand before God at the judgment, one of the things he's going to be sure to talk to you about is all the times you wrote down the date. There's a, there's a testimony. There's a witness, okay? When you go back in the Bible, all the way back to the beginning. I mean, just think, think about the reality here. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They were put out of the garden. They had Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel. A lot of dysfunction in the first family. Um, Eve had a son named Seth to carry the line down for 10 generations to a guy named Noah and the catastrophe of the flood. And from there, we can track Shem down to Abraham, who was followed by Isaac and then Jacob. And, And when Jacob died, Joseph led the family into safety in Egypt. And in due time, God raised up Moses. And then Moses died and Joshua stepped in. And then the judges came on the scene one after another, some of them failing in their calling, all of them dying. But God's work in the world continued. Samuel came on the scene. King Saul failed miserably, but then David took up the torch and carried on. Later in the northern kingdom, Elijah ministered faithfully, and he passed the mantle on to Elisha. And in the southern kingdom, Isaiah prophesied and then died. And in time, Jeremiah was there to continue. And down through Ezekiel to Daniel, to Zerubbabel, to Ezra, to Nehemiah. And each one of these people were purposed by God and placed strategically in this epic story by God's design. Each one of them carried on in a different way, their personalities shining through the text, but none of them, not one of them was the center. And to the extent that any of them became consumed with their own importance in the story, he or she missed their true place in it. See, you and I are the single greatest obstacle to our own Christ-centered life. If you are the center of your life, your perspective is going to be completely distorted. And our call is not to make much of ourselves. Our call is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's the call. Jesus models wholehearted obedience for us. God is pleased when we are wholehearted in our pursuit of Him. And then here's the last thing I want to say this morning. Um, being wholehearted leads to unspeakable joy in the presence of the Lord. I want you just to listen. This is an excerpt from 2 Corinthians 3, and this is Paul giving you a contrast. Here's, here's what it was for the old covenant, and here's the new covenant reality, and here's a little taste of what's coming. Listen to what Paul says about, because you know Moses is all in this text, and so listen to this. Paul asks a question. He starts 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1, with a question. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? I mean, do I have to talk myself up to you? Or do we need, as others, other, other apostles do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves know. You, you, you are, Paul says, you, you Christians in Corinth, you are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. What's the contrast here? Old covenant, new covenant. We're not writing things down on stone like Moses did. That was the old covenant. There's a new one now. 
and it's, it's predicated on grace. So Paul says in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but, Paul says, our sufficiency is from God because it's He who's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter. The letter of what? That's right. The letter, we're not dealing with the law as the centerpiece of our religious lives. He says, He's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Because the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. See, the, the law was the, the don't do this. You can never keep that. Because the minute you read it, you're like, oh, oh, there's a part of me that wants to do that. And even the thought is sin before God. And so here's Paul saying, no, no, no. God's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, but of the Spirit, because the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. And then he says this, same passage. Now, if that ministry of death, and he's talking about Moses and the old covenant, had a ministry of death. Yeah, because if you violated God's standards, he'd kill you. You come to the mountain, and God's on the mountain, and you touch the mountain, you're dead. I mean, even the animals, they touch the mountain, they're dead, right? So now if this ministry of death carved in letters on stone, those, those commandments, remember, if that ministry came with so much glory that the Israelites couldn't even gaze at the face of Moses because of its glory, and that glory was being brought to an end, it was temporary. Will not the ministry of the Holy Spirit have more glory? How much more glory? For if there's glory in a ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness will far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. The old covenant doesn't have the glory that it once had because the new covenant is so much better. For what's being brought to an end, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? And then he says this, since we have such a hope, we take our seed and we go bury it in the ground and shuffle along. Now he says, no, no you're bold. We, because we have this glory, we have this hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses. See, Moses when he had been in the presence of God, he was radiant with the Shekinah glory of God. He was glowing, and he put a veil on. Do you know why? Not because, not yeah, because it was going away. That's right. It was fading, and he didn't want the people to see that the glory of God was fading. So we, we have so much hope. We're very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their own minds were hardened. For even to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Jesus Christ is it taken away. And Paul says, yes, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is removed and they can see clearly, right? Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. That word in Greek is metamorphosized. We're being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of God. We're made in the image of God, but we're sinful, 
crude, rudimentary compared to God, but we're being made into the image of God. And when we go to be with Him, that transition will be complete and we will be radiant as He is radiant. We're being transformed in the same image from degree, one degree of glory to another. And all this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Look at that. We can't even imagine what it would have been like to be at the foot of Mount Sinai, to see the Shekinah cloud, to hear God speak audibly. Man, think about that. There was always a new covenant coming, a better covenant, not predicated on the blood of bulls and goats and rams, but established on the precious blood of the Son of God, the second person, Jesus, the Christ. And this is why Paul elaborates here in verse 18 that we all have to put our faith in Jesus for salvation and that, that then we have unveiled faces. We're not embarrassed about the glory we once had no, we're not worried about that, that temporary glory, that old covenant glory. We have permanent glory with Jesus. We're stoked because what little glory we had being made in the image of God is being increased and amplified in us. Did you know that? If you're walking in obedience, you're in the Word of God, every day there's more glory being added. More glory. It's a, at some point, the sons of God will be revealed, and we will see. We will see. Our glory is not... Uh, is in, our glory is increasing, not decreasing. And when we get to heaven, whether by rapture or by death, we're, we're going to need new bodies, okay, just to see each other. Like your, your eyeballs will just burn out of your socket like Indiana Jones in the temple of whatever, right? But we need, we're going to need new bodies just to look at each other, just to be in the presence of God. And the Father was well pleased with the Son because Jesus' obedience to the Father was only ever always wholehearted. Jesus is pleased with us when we're wholehearted in our devotion. And I'll just, I'll just wrap up with this. Scripture tells us, 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. You know, another way you could say fully committed is wholehearted. They are wholehearted in their devotion to Jesus. That's who Jesus is looking for. He's the one who strengthens us to walk in a manner worthy of his high calling. We can't muster up the power. It only comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And as we yield to the Spirit and let him take control, he transforms us. He enables us to hold up a, a, a life that's truly alive. And, and that is what it means to be wholehearted in our following of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus models wholehearted obedience. God is pleased when we're wholehearted in our pursuit of him. And being wholehearted leads to unspeakable joy in the presence of our great God and King. And by His grace, we will be a church that is wholehearted unto the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask for that in Your name. As we wrap up six years of church, as a church body, Lord, and we're going into year seven, we say to You this morning that we want to be found wholehearted in Your sight. Please, Lord, I don't even know all of what that means over the next year or, or two or, or until you come, uh, Lord, but would you work that into us? Would you work it into our DNA as a church that we would be wholehearted in all that we do and all that we say? We'd be wholehearted in our love for you and our love for the people around us. And Lord, we just thank you for all of your grace and mercy to us in Jesus' name. Wholehearted.
characterized by complete sincerity and commitment, marked by complete earnestness, free from all reserve or hesitation. Divided heart is drawn here and there, backwards and sideways, trying to live for self and God, but it doesn't work because we can't serve two masters. We need a single heart, a united heart, one preeminent desire, and that to please the Lord. We need to be wholehearted. So go forth this week with a whole heart when it comes to following and obeying Jesus. What he says, we will do. Where he sends, we will go. Let his gospel be on your lips and in your heart. Emmaus Road Church.